This short is brought to you by Lens Protocol. Looking back 25 years, are there any specific experiences that you can attribute to your creative simplicity of taking complex subjects and breaking them down into really fun, endearing videos? Anything you can look back on and kind of reflect on? Well, probably when you're learning to be a videographer or a filmmaker, you find ways to fund yourself and you find ways to to keep doing the job because otherwise you have to do another job. And it's very difficult to make films. That's not true. It's actually very easy to make films there. It used to be very difficult to make films. When I started, getting your hands on the cameras, getting your hands on the equipment. So what you did was take crappy jobs. And those crappy jobs, in my instance, were karaoke videos. So if you went mm. to a karaoke bar, there would be a video sitting behind the lyrics of some cheesy dude and some cheesy girl in black and white and in slow-mo. Well, chances are I made that video and that's how I learned. But we used to churn out about like five or six of these a day and we challenge ourselves to shoot them for 10 pounds. That was the budget we give ourselves. Wow. Because uh, we, would, we would receive 300 pounds for making them. And then we just like knock out five or six a day and, you know, try and shoot them as quickly and as cheaply as we could. But man, you learned so much in that process. And that was basically film school. Where that led to was then, well, obviously we can make instructional videos. So we made instructional videos for the likes of gyms and things like that. Because we were doing a lot of um, extreme sports stuff to begin with, skiing, snowboarding, and base jumping. That's kind of how I got started, just filming nutters throwing themselves off cliffs and other cable cars. And that led to TV work, doing explainers basically breaking down tricks and how to do them for viewers of the extreme sports channel. And we did a buttload of that, like a, like a really a lot of different kinds of types of explainers. And I guess that's kind of where it came from. Just, you know, taking tricks and tips and turning them into content. But that was like before even YouTube. Um, so I, I guess also the other half of it is I'm naturally curious. I, I went to the university of Oxford believe it or not. My father oh, it was a professor at the University of Oxford. So I'm flexing my non-Ivy League, Ivy League credentials <laughs> here as a proud Brit. Um, so I guess it's, academically, I'm fairly woke and enjoy learning new things. And crypto was always a challenge. It's like, how do you, how do you play this game? Because it always feels right. like a game, right? And then you, you, know, you get into shitcoin trading, you get into the darker arts of growing your quote unquote network, which is like, who's got the tip on this next shit coin that's going to go up and all that stuff. And then gradually growing into actually a proper network of people who are building stuff, who are doing things. And then parlaying that into, in my case, a DeFi network, uh, which became the basis of how I kind of got hired by the Defiant. So all of that, it's just, it's just a natural curiosity about playing games and trying to win those games and seeing how best to do that. And then there's the game of DeFi. That, that entails your transition into working with the Define, but how did you actually get into crypto? Like, what was that story that got you into, into the space? So it's kind of part, partly tragic, partly true, mostly true. Some of it's fictitious. Um, I am a storyteller <laughs> after all. No, it's, I had directed a feature film before I turned 40, which is like one of those milestones. Like if you're a filmmaker directing a feature film, it sets you like, about above 99% of the rest of people who make films. Cause it's very, very difficult to make a feature film and very few people actually get to do it. It's sort of worth less these days than it used to be, but it really was when I grew up, it was like the gold standard. If you've done that, you've made it. Except the fact is you haven't made it. You've made a film. So what you go to the Cannes film festival, you go to the market there and there's 4,000 other people 
selling a product that is basically indistinguishable from yours in the market. And then there's like this tiny veneer on top where the money lies, the money there. But most of the other product is garbage. It's being sold to TV networks. And you're part of that garbage. You're in that garbage pile. That's a horrifying realization that actually the thing that you thought was now your calling card, that you've made it, was actually no more than a tiny, tiny, tiny bit of print in a catalog that would be basically turned into pulp in two weeks. And that that's a horrible place to be. So after that, I kind of went, well, what do I do now? And I realized that I would have to kind of get real and get back into the grind of making work that I didn't want to make. And I had two kids at the time. And so basically what happened was I surrendered meekly to the God of commerce and said, I will now be a commercial director and I will make commercials and that's what it will be. And so I just ended up making shit I hated. Mm. And it sounds so entitled because I had budget. I had all the tools I needed. I had nice cameras. I had lights. I had all these kind of things. And I had access to shoot things two or three times a month that was paying the bills and by all accounts should have been happy, made it. But every job you just like, well, where's me in all of this? Where's the honesty? Where's, where's the idea that I can take to the set and say, wow, that was a cool idea. We did it. And like, it was so few and far between. It just grinds you down after a while. There's only so many times you can go into a, a meeting about a coffee product and debate whether the vase next to the coffee machine should be this shade of blue or that shade of blue. Because tell me, who gives a fuck about the color <laughs> of the vase? Nobody except the brand Nazis. So yeah, so that, that's just kind of where I ended up. And like, I, I realized that in order to make the move back into the creative stuff that I wanted to do, I was going to have to spend at least a year, probably two years, putting right. every single penny I owned into making a completely brand new set of work, just a completely brand new, just, you know, work that reflected what I actually wanted to be and wanted to do. But there was no guarantee that I would even be able to pull that off because it's really hard to get those kinds of projects off the ground. You have to produce them yourself. You have to kind of get favors from everybody. It's just expensive. And so I was just thinking like, how do I do this? What, what, what am I supposed to be doing with my life? And the question in my mind was always about money. It was like, the, the problem is money. I don't have enough money. I'm smart enough to be able to figure this out. What I've been doing is chasing this stupid, crazy thing and not using my brain properly. I can do this. No, I couldn't. Uh, and what happened was I went down to a job in Belgium with my boss. And while we were driving down, he told me about this thing that he bought, this cryptocurrency. And he told me, you know, I bought this thing and now it could pay off my mortgage. And I was like, well, what is that? What is a cryptocurrency? What is this thing? I kind of knew about Bitcoin already. I'd actually randomly bought some when I was researching uh, some ideas about Silk Road. Funnily enough, back in the day, I ended up buying Bitcoin. No idea where that Bitcoin is. It's in a wallet somewhere, which I can't access. I don't even know how much I had, but I know I bought it off a site called Bitylicious in the UK. Um, <laughs> I don't believe you. <laughs> no, no, it's true. It's absolutely true. It's back in 2013. What, what year? Okay. Wow. Yeah. Okay. 2013. Um, yeah. Madness. Absolute madness. I don't know where it is. And, um, but then I completely forgotten about it. He told me about this thing and I was like, I need to understand what this is. And then my brother-in-law just randomly said, and you know what? I might just give up my job as an architect and mine Bitcoin instead. Those two points triggered an idea. I went down the rabbit hole and I never came back out. And I was just, that was 2017. I was just literally just before the bull run really took off in 2017. I looked at this thing and just went, well, this is how you do it. This is how you solve money. I was taught a horrible lesson later 
in 2018 when it all went all came crashing down. But what I did learn during the course of that was that this was a space I could thrive in, that there were f- people here who were doing some interesting things. And if I made friends with them, maybe that would lead to other things. The ICO craze was going on and there was so much to learn, so much to absorb. Um, it was really fascinating. And then off the back of that, just by random chance, a syndicate that I was a part of made an investment in Harmony at their seed round. So they got access to the seed round of Harmony and I was like, all right, I'll, I'll, I'm in, I'm in, whatever this is, I'm in. And just kind of became obsessed with this project called Harmony. Not because I thought it was going to be the greatest project in the world. I was actually a little skeptical of it to begin with, but because it was really easy to see who they were. They were this team in Silicon Valley. It was kind of fascinating how they had these Saturday barbecues. It just seemed interesting. And so I just called them up and said, I was a seed investor. I think I could tell your story in a really interesting way. Would you be interested in that? Because what I've been thinking about was crypto is powered by memes. It's powered by storytelling. But the storytellers in the space were either scam artists or just kind of meme artists. And there wasn't anything in between that was more substantial, but wasn't scammy at that time. And so I thought maybe if if I'm good at content, I might have a place in this space. So that was it. I rang up Harmony. We discussed it for about a year. Weren't able to really kick it on. They wanted to do a documentary about the project. Uh, I said, yeah, we can definitely do that, but we need some budget. And then I just took a chance bought a ticket, flew over and went to meet them. And off the back of that, in the room, I pitched them a different idea and they bought it in the room. And about three months later, we realized that the best place for me to be probably was working for Harmony. So I joined them as their creative director and that was 2019. So So that's kind of when DeFi was just emerging and Harmony was a layer one sharding protocol. It was about high speed. It was about exciting, new, blazing fast applications. EOS was still big back then. Mm-hmm. And DeFi was starting to emerge, but and there was this growing narrative around DeFi. Funnily enough, there was another growing narrative around a kind of exciting Korean project that was really gaining traction that no one was really paying attention to, but everyone thought was going to be a big deal, especially our Korean team members. It was called Terra, believe it or not. And um, and so I, I, in my role with Harmony, I, I quickly pivoted to video because I was their creative director and I was helping write communications and chip in with ideas around marketing. But I realized that like, the best job I could do for them was video. So we just got the office here. We got a little camera and started producing videos for them. And then... I just realized that we would have no footprint in DeFi and we would miss the entire DeFi movement unless we did something. There was no way we could get any protocols to build on Harmony at that point. It was too soon. We were just about to kind of build a bridge. That was the first kind of instance of Harmony arriving. And and so I thought if if we make the best content about DeFi and tell the story of DeFi, then we might have something. So in order to do that, I needed to partner up with one of the two DeFi newsletters at the time, one of which was Bankless and the other was The Defiant. So those are your two sources for DeFi. And I just decided I would get really good at understanding DeFi and good, really good at explaining DeFi. Mm. And I called them both up or I emailed them both. Um, Ryan Sean Adams messaged me back once. He laughs about this now on Twitter. Haha. Uh-huh. Uh, he ghosted me after that because I was working for Harmony. He didn't want to, he didn't want to have anything to do with it. Um, so I could have ended up working for Bankless, didn't, uh, I ended up working with Camilla at the Defiant and yeah, we just started telling the story of what was going on. Like the curve launch, 
with Wi-Fi, with all these projects that now just seem kind of weirdly established and not that exciting. But you forget, like when DeFi Summer happened, they were the most exciting games in town. Right. It was just there was this incredible energy around fair launch. I mean, we were just coming out of the P- PTSD of like an extended, painful bear market, and suddenly there was this rush around food tokens, like sushi and like pickles and like all this stuff. It just I, yams thinking about now, and- it's just bizarre yams like all of this stuff so much experimentation and ponzonomics around these yield farms and everything else it was wild and so we were telling those stories and um what i realized was there's a bloomberg way to tell that story and there's the shitcoin channel way to tell that story and then there was a different way which was how (laughs) did it feel like what the robin what, way what, what, and like yeah the, the really random weird way and so I, I just started doing stuff like i would be really seriously telling you a story and then i just get hit in the face with the banana so like with the curve launch because curve is curved and bananas are curved i thought this story is bananas why don't i just tell the entire thing using bananas as a metaphor and i had a banana as a telephone i get hit in the face of the banana just just riffing on that and it became like a little signature thing i just do these really weird videos and like we spent nothing on them but the creativity was there for people to see and it became a kind of running thing. And then when the sushi uh, chef Nomi rugged on sushi and ran off with like right. 10 million bucks, uh, he just wrote these painfully awkward messages on Twitter, how he's not a bad guy. And then we turned that into a country and Western song because Tiger King <laughs> had just come out at the time. And like, there was this song, I saw a tiger, and the tiger was mine. So I turned the story of sushi into a, country and western ballad and people just went nuts for it um and i just kept doing stuff like that and then we did the whole story of pickles pickles is an amazing one we did the whole thing as a in in rap so i just like i learned how to rap and then we recorded like four different rap songs to tell the story of this stuff um and then we did one where it was like this the world's longest most involved hack did it as, a, as an R&B slow jam. So I just improvised like Drake over the top of like a slow jam thing. It's like, why? Who does that? But like, that was the, that was the medium of expression for me. So it was just taking a thing that doesn't deserve to have any creativity whatsoever that isn't interesting and, and just uh, doing that. And I think that's just kind of what got me on, on people's radars and, and got me into a position where when it came to launching my own thing, I, I, I was in a position to ask for investment in a way that they weren't going to laugh right. at. So that's what we ended up doing. What's up, guys? Thank you for listening. If you've gotten this far, then you are a champ and I owe you a free listener pin. Go to adamlevy.io forward slash NFT, fill in your info, and I'll distribute the NFT towards the end of the season. By collecting your pin, you prove your contribution to the season and get exclusive access to content, allow lists, and more. So be sure to collect yours. Also, please make sure to rate and subscribe to the podcast wherever you're listening. This helps me out so much. And finally, hit me up on Twitter at LevyChain. I want to hear what you're building, the latest crowdfund you're trying to complete, or if you simply want to chat. I love talking about where crypto meets the creator economy, and it's no different if it's coming from you directly. So thanks again for your support. It means the world, and I'll see you on the next episode.